Welcome to the Waiting Room Revolution. Today we speak with Dr. Sabina Keene, a geriatrician from McMaster University. We talk about frailty and dementia with a focus on what patients and families need to know along the journey from the perspective of an expert. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Sabina, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sabina, I am so excited to reconnect with you after all these years as medical school classmates. For our listeners, how would you describe what a geriatrician does? Like what kind of patients do you see each day? So technically speaking, a geriatrician is like medicine for seniors, right? And sometimes I have healthy seniors say, well, can I come and see you? And I say, well, you really probably don't need to come and see me just based on age, because we tend to see more people who are having a lot of medical problems or who are having memory problems or falls. So we tend to generally specialize in the the ailments that are more common in seniors, and that often relates to things that have to do with your mind or your mobility. Um, so I would say that's probably the biggest um, explanation or the best explanation as to what we do as geriatricians. There is so much overlap in mm-hmm. the whole person approach um, to what we do as doctors in palliative care and geriatrics, right? Absolutely. And- you probably get the same thing, just like you and I were turned on by mentors in these areas. I think most people go into medicine thinking that this is the way you practice medicine. This is what they're looking for. This holistic approach, this comprehensive approach like geriatricians and palliative care doctors take. I think it takes time to do a good job at palliative care. And I think it takes a time to do a good job at geriatric medicine. And sometimes it just feels easier to prescribe a medication for a symptom than to sit down and try and look at all the different facets and try and do that problem solving activity. And I think, you know, we as physicians, you know, we think differently as well. I, you know, I don't really want to be, you know, in the intensive care unit and have to make split second decisions. Mm-hmm. I work better at being able to sort of think things through and, you know, process things in order to make those decisions. So, you know, everybody's mm-hmm. wired differently. I'm glad we have emergency room doctors and ICU care, you know, doctors who can do those split second decisions because we need them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, we also need people who can sort of sit back and thoughtfully think about things as well um, in those times so that we can try and get through some of the more complicated problems. Because, you know, as people are aging now, it's not like it was even 20 years ago when we started medical school, you know, Sammy and I, right? Like there, people have a lot more comorbidities even than then 20 years ago, they have a lot more medical conditions and the interplay between those medical conditions is becoming more and more difficult. And the, the number of medications they are on is becoming more and more. And so trying to understand how that all fits together mm-hmm. takes more time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's part of it. Can we talk a little bit about frailty and then switch to dementia? I just wanted to know, how would you describe what frailty is? 
So we often, frailty is such a big um, discussion now because uh, it's sort of like a hot topic. And we do see people for frailty because really, you know, when you look, you know, it's quite often that sometimes people will have just small ailments in many different domains, but they add up to have a significant impact on people's quality of life. So, you know, we do do assessments of patients who have a frailty type syndrome. Um, and there's some good studies now to suggest that we can actually make a difference um, in people who have frailty by addressing their common medical conditions, but also in looking at their mobility in particular. Exercise is very um, effective in helping reduce frailty and prevent um, worsening of frailty. So it is a hot topic and we do see people who have a constellation of symptoms rather than one particular disease process. Is there such a thing, Sabina, as dying of old age, just plain old, old age? Well, you know, I, I mean, you hear about it all the time. <laughs> I would say that you're probably dying from something that's not just old age. So the heart either fails, you know, or the lungs fail. People die in their sleep, you know, for lots of reasons, right? But I, I would say somewhere along the way, it's probably because their heart fails. Um, it's one of those things that is not very well understood and you know it's hard to know because oftentimes we don't actually go digging when someone is in their 90s you know and they died mm -hmm. why did they die right we don't go looking for it we just think oh okay well they were older i think of my grandmother who was 104 when she died and you know she eventually was more frail but i wouldn't classify her as having frailty because it was normal for her age and so from year to year, 95, 96, 97, 98, and so on and so forth, I saw her lose stamina. And she had just a little bit of a couple different things, but nothing gallivanting ahead. And she literally just slowed down. And so you could see it from year to year, then month to month, then week to week, and then she was gone. And so I tell people, you know, uh, I feel like she died of old age. Her body just knew, like we're programmed to do, how at some point to pass away and that this isn't a medical condition. It's probably more um, a social, psychosocial, community, family kind of event. Um, but I don't classify that as frailty, although in the end she was frail. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are definitely aging changes, right? We know that, you know, muscle generally gets a little bit um, weaker over time, you know, and that some of the nerve endings, you tend to see a little bit of neuropathy um, over time. So, um, you know, there's definitely, and then if you are moving less, the less you move, you know, the your, your muscles get weaker too. So gradually it sort of compounds. And then as you accumulate all these little, deficits in your muscle mass and your bone mass, you know, maybe your appetite sort of starts to dwindle as a result as well. I think that they kind of all add up to a point where it just sort of fails in the end, right? And then I think of frailty as more when someone has, like you said, so many notches taken out of them, uh, more than you would expect compared to their age match cohort, like a 70 year old who sort of looks like, or not looks like, maybe they look like, but their function is more like someone way older. Um, they're just not as hardy as you would expect for that age. 
Yes, and there's a lot of things that go into frailty, right? Like some of the more classical definitions do talk about, you know, like grip strength as being a marker of strength and muscle function and just the feeling of being fatigued, right? So there's almost like a deconditioning that comes in that and whether that happens as a result of, you know, disease processes like osteoporosis or pain um or other physical ailments that lead to that feeling of being tired and then deconditioning um and then weight loss being a part of that uh, um as well so you know <clears throat> when you put all these things starting to get together people become less and less functional and the less and again the less you're able to do the less you eventually do and it kind of sort of snowballs on itself mm -hmm. which i think is why exercise is a great intervention for people with frailty because you're building back up a lot of the things that you know are the fundamentals as to why people start to dwindle because they they start moving less and doing less because they don't feel like it yeah it's like a perfect storm yeah exactly so we sometimes coach our listeners to talk about to zoom out and ask about the storyline of their illness and so if they went to you if one of our listeners said hey we've been listening to this podcast and we want to know what the beginning middle and late stage of say frailty looks like what would you say to that how would you respond so um so I, I would say that in terms of frailty, we do talk about like a pre-frail state where you see maybe just a few of the findings. So it might be that you have some symptoms of a disease, you know, that you feel a little short of breath, but you're still managing everything. So those beginning stages, right? And then once you're into the frailty syndrome, right, then you've got a number of these deficits. So a number of things that are bothering you, usually, it's, you know, symptoms that are slowing you down, and that you're, you're starting to rely on other people, you know, being a little bit more dependent in, you know, getting maybe some of your tasks done, like cooking and cleaning and shopping. And I think as that frailty spectrum progresses, and you're getting into the later stages, now you're needing help with your personal activities like getting washed and getting dressed or your symptoms are stopping you from being able to do some of those personal activities or getting around and walking and maybe you're more bed bound or in a chair more often um, until you know the very very severe frailty stages when someone might be more bedridden um, so that i think would be a good summary of that spectrum from pre-frail when you just have a couple of symptoms but are really independent almost to you know, having a lot of symptoms and more dependent on others. It sounds like the pre-frail, like the beginning of it would be like in retrospect, like, oh, like probably it's one of these things that you don't really know what's happening until you're a certain way into it. Yes. And then look back and say, okay, well, we were less frail, but it was starting and now we're really into more frail. I bet yeah. these people get worked up head to toe for lots of different things and then is it a diagnosis of exclusion almost um i don't always think of frailty as a diagnosis per se because i think it's like a combination of factors syndrome. Um, rather than yeah it's a, it's more a syndrome than anything else and i think you know that going from pre-frail syndrome to a frail syndrome is really how you respond 
in some ways. I mean, so, some of this is genetically, you know, determined as to, you know, whether your illness gets worse. But I think sometimes it, it, it's how you respond to those early symptoms, you know, whether you get the medical attention you need, whether you get the medications you need to help with your symptoms, whether you have supports to help you, mm -hmm. um, whether you stay active, whether your mood allows you to stay active, because maybe you're now feeling depressed because you're not feeling well, and that then leads to less activity and that snowballs right mm -hmm. versus someone who's like has the attitude like oh well i have a few symptoms but i'm not going to let that beat me i'm going to stay active and i'm going to keep i think those kinds of you know situations are really what determines whether someone goes from pre-frail to a more frail stage um that 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 plays a role anyway i mean surely the disease process also plays a role you know and there's some things that we can't change um, but I think there's a lot of things we can change. So, yeah, it, depending on someone's situation, uh, five people can all be frail, but it also is impacted by the things you said, their mood, their social network, um, the supports they have around them, their environment. So the, it's really more complicated, uh, than just saying someone's frail. Um, and then, and then the flip side of that is what I'm hearing is you can exploit some of those things uh, to, to potentially make a person's situation better. Right. Um, so you really go looking for those things that can be changed and influenced. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, that's where sometimes, you know, home care comes in or exploring someone's social network, like in terms of how they can be helped to continue on. Um, like in dementia, you know, oftentimes when someone has dementia, we have have the obligation to limit their driving, right? But mm. unfortunately, when we limit someone's ability to get around, we also limit their social activities, right? Their ability to go out and do the things that are actually gonna help them in the long run because someone who has dementia is gonna do better if they're more socially active, physically active, right? Mentally active. And that often requires that you have to leave your house to do that. <clears throat> So exploring the, you know, social network of who can help with these transportation concerns or take them out or be part of that social network to keep them, you know, talking to people and socially active, that, that helps a lot in those situations rather than if someone now is stuck in their house and can't get out and can't do those things. It's like a vicious cycle. It's the unintended consequences of having to necessarily take someone's driver's license away. Um, when we know that being independent and out and about is good for them, but they can't because it's not safe. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned dementia and that's why we invited you today, but look at us. We got into all these other amazing bits and pieces. And I just want to, um, I have so many questions for you about so many different, um, conditions that elderly people face, but today we invited you here to help our listeners understand the chapters of dementia. Um, so if someone was diagnosed with dementia, how they and their family understand what dementia looks like, how it behaves, how it transitions over time into different chapters, how you know how long someone will live with dementia. You don't have to answer that all the way, but that's sort of the storyline we're looking for. We know what um, how to draw out dementia, <laughs> but we want to put some meat on, on that, um, illness trajectory. Right. So tell us about dementia. Okay. 
So, you know, a lot, there are a lot of misconceptions about what dementia means. And I find often when people come, they, they really, you know, they, they usually think about, you know, a relative that they had who was in a nursing home and who was unaware um, or who was lacking in communication. And, and so people often are very quite scared when they hear the word dementia because they have these ideas already these preconceived ideas about what dementia looked like when they were younger mm -hmm. so i often try to explain to people that the word itself dementia means you have some memory and some thinking troubles and because of those memory and thinking troubles you have some difficulty managing some of your your day-to-day -day tasks and you know it could be as simple as just forgetting to take your pills on a regular basis but you're still maybe able to cook that might still be dementia. Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you can't recognize family or that you're not able to do anything or are unaware. It could be as simple as I'm just struggling a bit with some of my day-to-day -day activities. Um, and that would be kind of considered a mild dementia. Um, so prior to that, sometimes usually before you get to that stage you might have some mild memory troubles and not everybody recognizes this because there is some degree of well isn't that normal as you get older that you start having memory troubles and everybody's idea of what would be a normal memory trouble is different i usually say when someone comes in complaining you know i have my memory's a problem and i go down the stairs and i forget what i went down the stairs for and and i usually if they start with that i think okay this person's fine because <laughs> most of I'm us, so relieved. I'm so relieved. <laughs> right? Most of us will have that happen and sometimes frequently, right? But um, you know, it, it, before you have a dementia stage, there are times when you might have, you know, being forgetful of appointments that you make or being forgetful of certain words when you're speaking. And you might still be able to manage all of your day to day activities and do your banking and do your driving and all that. But it, there is a, a stage where it starts when you just have these memory or these language changes, and we call that mild cognitive impairment. And that one, you know, sometimes it's hard to know if someone has mild cognitive impairment because it kind of relates to what were they always like before, you know, some of us lose our keys all the time and so you know if i'm losing my keys now then it, that's not a change from before mm -hmm. but if you were that person who always knew where your keys were and you were very good at it and now all of a sudden you can't seem to find that that's a change mm -hmm. so that would probably be one of those people who would have more of a mild cognitive impairment starting mm -hmm. uh, i i think that's so important what you're saying about change that really uh looking at these things compared to the person's baseline relies on their ability to pick up change or the people around them, right? So it's either they themselves pick up on the change or people around them or their family doctor who knows them over a period of time, all right. important cast of characters. Absolutely. We rely heavily on, you know, when people bring in family with them to be able to tell us their side of the story, because, mm -hmm. yeah, definitely I have people come in and say, oh, yeah, my memory, I'm having trouble or I've noticed that, you know, I'm forgetting these things. But we also have people who come in and they say, no, my memory is just fine. Mm -hmm. And they don't see their own memory differences. And it's their family or their family doctor who's picking up on it, you know, on a day to day basis. Um, so, you know, that happens, too. You know, um, I think of all the different specialists, uh, other than family doctors, I feel like geriatricians are incredible at incorporating the family. Like they're one medical specialty that sees the family and the patient as a unit of intel. 
Absolutely. Yeah, we that's, you know, a requirement pretty much when when we make our appointments, we say you have to bring someone with us, right? It's so much more effective um, as a, you know, to see someone for memory when you have a family member with them um, to give their side of the story. And so I'm always thankful when my patients give us permission to speak to their families to get that perspective because it adds so much um, to the story. Mm -hmm. Well, I was just going to ask Sabina for our listeners, maybe to just quickly tell us about the different types of dementia, and then okay. maybe we can go into what I understand is the most common one called Alzheimer's. Yeah. So like, like, as I mentioned, so dementia means memory and thinking troubles that affect your day-to-day -day function, right? So there are lots of different kinds of dementia. And oftentimes I have people come in and they say, well, it, it wasn't Alzheimer's, it was dementia. And you have to have that discussion that actually, you know, Alzheimer's is dementia. It's a type of dementia. And there are other types of dementia. And probably, you know, what most people might be familiar with as an, another type would be a dementia that comes from a stroke where someone might have a stroke and as a result of the stroke they have some memory troubles and that impacts their function and those are probably i would say the two biggest types of dementia would be alzheimer's or stroke and in our specialty we see a combination of the two quite frequently we will call that a mixed dementia but um you know the stroke dementia is pretty easy to spot because usually they've had other symptoms they've been to the hospital with their stroke mm -hmm. um, uh, Alzheimer's dementia start, starts a lot, you know, more gradually, often with some forgetfulness. Um, but Alzheimer's dementia, you know, one person's Alzheimer's is different from the next person, and they're not all the same. And some people start with difficulties with their words. Um, you know, some people start with depression. Some people start with different behavioral abnormalities. So, you know, it's not the same for everyone, but the majority of people who have Alzheimer's start with a a forgetfulness kind of picture. Mm -hmm. There's also Lewy body dementia. This one's kind of related to Parkinson's disease. Um, yeah. Can I ask you, when you say stroke, like this is another way of saying that vascular? Yes, vascular okay. dementia would be like a stroke related dementia. Okay, yeah, sorry, absolutely. So, no, that's okay. <laughs> it's juicy. It's juicy. But you were going to um, Lewy body. Yeah, Lewy body dementia is related to Parkinson's um, disease. So it has similar disease process happening in the brain. Um, and oftentimes uh, people will start with their memory or their thinking impairments at the same time as they would start with what look like Parkinson's like symptoms, where they are, they're a little bit stiffer, um, they might move a little slower, um, they might have a tremor, although it's less common in Lewy body dementia. And then some of the other symptoms of Lewy body might include having hallucinations. So visual hallucinations is usually, so they might see people um, and they're usually quite vivid hallucinations. It's not just shadows. Oftentimes it's like that they see a couple people coming into their living room and people at the beginning stages often can describe it quite well to you and will say, well, my, my husband doesn't see it, but I can see them plain as day. They're sitting in my living room, you know? Um, so hallucinations is quite common. And again, at the beginning, stages of the dementia. It's not uncommon with other dementias as they progress and become more severe that people can have hallucinations or other, you know, perceptual disturbances. But um, with Lewy body, it usually starts up front at the beginning. Hmm. Um, so that probably 
best describes Lewy body is that they would have more Parkinson's like symptoms, they might have hallucinations, they tend to really fluctuate um, quickly. So even within the same day, they might seem really with it in one moment, and then later in the day seem more confused. Um, and then lastly, um, the what other big category of dementia that we see would be a frontotemporal dementia. Um, and it's called that because it affects the frontal and temporal parts of the brain um, earlier than in other dementias. And this one usually starts with behavioral um, differences. So oftentimes people will be inappropriate. You know, family will say, oh, I can't have people over anymore because they're kind of rude. They'll say, you know, inappropriate things. They might comment on someone's, you know, body habits, you know, like they, so that they feel start start feeling embarrassed by their loved one because they're inappropriate. And sometimes they'll be um, apathetic. So they don't want to do anything. They'll be sitting on the couch and and just not have any motivation to do anything sometimes to the point where they don't even want to go to the bathroom you know it's a very extreme kind of i'm not doing anything and it's not that they're being lazy because i've definitely had family members come in and they're like oh they're so lazy they just sit on the couch all the time but it's their brain that is stopping them from having any kind of motivation to do something and that starts really early in the disease process and that would be more this frontotemporal behavior dementia so those are kind of like the big four that we look for when we're looking at people with dementia. So Alzheimer's dementia, is it fair that I tell people that it's variable in terms of the life expectancy, but could span, you know, you know, 15 years on average population statistics? Um, yeah, I, I kind of tend to think of the average as being about 10 um, but, you know, I've seen people whose Alzheimer's disease progressed within two or three years. Mm -hmm. um, and then I've seen other people, it's been like 20 years or mm -hmm. even more sometimes. So it's so different from person to person that it makes it really difficult to tell people what to expect. Um, and I think, you know, time is usually, I always say time will tell um, in terms of how people are going. But, you know, even within the same person, you can have times where, the disease seems to be progressing really slowly and then other times where all of a sudden you get a dip and people progress really quickly in maybe the middle stage of the disease mm -hmm. so even you know what looks like the past experience for the last couple of years doesn't always foretell what's coming what does a geriatrician monitor to help them understand where this person's at in their dementia storyline do you do tests do you, is it on physical exam? Is it uh, their memory scores? Like how do you measure how early, middle or late someone's dementia is? Right. So we do do tests, although I have to say that when I'm trying to measure someone's stage of dementia, I really look at their function as much as possible. So, you know, if you have a mild dementia, they probably are only really having trouble with one or two of their functions. You know, like I said earlier, maybe they might have some difficulty, you know, remembering to take their pills, or maybe they're having a little bit of trouble managing their finances in terms of remembering to pay bills and they only have maybe one or two of those in the middle stages they tend to have trouble with a lot of those functions so now maybe i'm having trouble with my cooking i can't drive anymore because i'm getting lost and i'm having trouble with my finances and my medications 
as we're getting closer to the severe stages, now I'm having difficulty taking care of my person. So I'm having trouble remembering to wash myself, or I'm having trouble figuring out what clothes to wear for the weather, or maybe I, I can't put them on quite the right way. Um, so those, you know, when you're starting to have more difficulty with taking care of your person, then you're getting closer and closer to this more severe stages. Mm -hmm. Of course, we do testing and we look at memory tests and we have a few different memory tests that we look at. Um, and it, 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 but it really more tells me from person to person, you know, that things are changing when I see the number changing. Um, <clears throat> as opposed to staying stable. Yeah, I was just going to say that. So subjectively, people will report a change in function, or you ask about their function declining, their yeah. ability to um, do things and take care of themselves. But then you correlate that with um, a more objective measure of the memory scores on these tests that you um, administer. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So are there certain features that might suggest to a family or patient, oh, I'm in deeper here? Like, for example, sometimes people talk about incontinence or the ability to eat. Yeah, oh, I mean, I think that, that, you know, that can happen sometimes even in the more mild to moderate stages where people are a little bit confused about time of day or what they've done earlier in the day. I would say... I, I mean, I'm not sure if you're if you're meaning when you're saying getting in deeper, like we're getting into the end stages or more palliative stages of dementia. If if that's what you mean, then I would say, you know, probably when you're starting to have more trouble with things like eating and feeding and maybe you're sitting at the table and, and they can't, you know, use utensils anymore or they're now, you know, when they're eating, they're having trouble swallowing and they're coughing. Um, you know, and like you said, you know, they're, they might be having more mobility difficulties. They're having more trouble figuring out how to stand up and, and get down the hallway. Um, or, you know, it, when they're being assisted for things like getting dressed, maybe now you really have to kind of hold their arm to put it in their sleeve, almost like you, when you're taking care of a small child at the beginning, you have to kind of take their arm and put it in the sleeve as opposed to that they intuitively do that. I would mm -hmm. say then you know that you're really in the later, later stages of a dementia. The more you have to do, the more you feel like you're taking care of that small child because you're regressing in those milestones that were milestones you, you watch as a child progresses as they mm -hmm. get older and mature, right? I was just thinking, does the patient, him or herself, know that they're changing like do you think they have any awareness yeah i would say that some do for sure right and and some will be able to express that to you i think sometimes in the more severe stages potentially that awareness may go away a little bit more but um definitely you know we still see in severe stages that there are people who just they know that they're not doing well and they know they need help mm -hmm. and they know that they're relying on um, others and it's interesting to see you know everybody's reaction to that because it's so different because i think when we watch it we often say oh that must be so horrible um you know and and we don't always see that as the response you know so some patients are still very happy mm -hmm. and very content, even though they still have, you know, dependence 
on others that are helping them and they and they don't seem even though they know that they need help they don't seem to be bothered by it whereas you know there are some that are bothered by it but i would say the greater majority of what i have witnessed is that there are a lot of people who aren't actually bothered by the help that they need it's so incredible what you're saying because you know we often talk about how the anticipation of what's to come is often worse for people than when they're actually at that stage. Um, sometimes, not always, but that they can redraw the line in the sand that at the beginning when you're well, you think, oh, I never want to live beyond the point where I can do X, but you get there and you miraculously adapt. And then, you know, it's like looking forward into the future is almost sometimes more scary for people than once they get there. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I think that I often ask, um, you know, my caregivers, mm. are they happy? Do they seem happy? Do they seem content? And it, and it honestly surprises me how often I actually get the answer. Yeah, they're fine. When, when, you know, you have a caregiver and they're worried and they're telling you all these things that are happening and, and they're very concerned because it's all these changes. And I say, but do they seem like they're bothered by them or, and are they content? And, and then they're like, no, actually they're, they're quite happy. And I, and I try to remind them that that's good, right? Like this is, mm -hmm. this is probably one of the best things one of the best when someone is you know having difficulties with their memory and thinking skills is that they still are happy or content or and they're not frightened and they're not scared um that this is one of the best outcomes and there's a lot of people who actually are in that situation and have quality of life and you know sometimes uh, you know as this as the stages advance you know we suggest day programs for patients um and it's amazing you know and sometimes they are you know quite advanced in their dementia but they enjoy getting together and they enjoy doing activities and sometimes you know physical games like playing with a ball sometimes it's coloring sometimes it's other types of games or sorting or puzzles but um, they enjoy it. And I would say, you know, as long as someone has good quality of life, we, we can worry a little bit less about where they're going with their dementia illness. And I think there was like a recent study that said like about half of Canadians, you know, say that they admit that if they, that they would feel ashamed or embarrassed if they had a dementia. But I think it's because, you know, we project what we feel right and there's a lot of stigma associated with dementia and you know we have to stop thinking of it as you know something that we would be ashamed we you'd never be really ashamed if you had heart disease you know right like it's just it's another disease process that happens and you know there there's still good quality of life and great things that happen along that disease process mm -hmm. i think this has become more complicated because of the legislation for physician assisted dying or made in Canada. And for people with dementia, they are not allowed to ask for this in advance, say with an advanced directive. So this whole thing has been a bit controversial. This is so complicated. I think that, you know, that's why I was trying to say too, you know, that some people, their quality of life is actually pretty good. I, I, I had a patient who had mild cognitive impairment who we called them for their follow-up. And, and his wife said, we went to, I think it was, Sweden or Holland or something like that. And he had medically assisted suicide because of it. And I thought, 
you had mild cognitive impairment. Like there's, there's a 50% chance in the next five years that you will not progress. (laughs) Like, why did you do that? Like, it was the, it made me so crazy to hear. It was very upsetting because I thought, did I fail in terms of my educational opportunity here to say that this doesn't necessarily relate, you know, then progress to a dementia and yeah, it, it was very upsetting to hear that. You and know, I agree it, with you. People don't know. You don't know till you're in that position. And, you know, being a spiritual person, I also look at it from the perspective of how much you can, as a, as a patient with dementia, I hear stories all the time from people who are caregivers that get so much blessing out mm-hmm. of caring for others, or mm-hmm. there's just little things that happen or interactions. Lines right there's many silver linings and and even staff people at long-term care facilities you know that the the joy they get out of taking care of people with dementia and you know i think it changes them and i think you know these are some of the things the intangibles in terms of you know personal growth as we as we persevere through difficulties that we don't you know we want we don't want to have difficulties but these are actually the things that make us grow as human beings when we have to persevere through difficulties right so i think that that's something that people take for granted especially in the dementia course i was going to say i I wonder if sometimes people um, worry because the idea is that or the, the mental image is that they could be at each of these phases for a very long period of time and there is this feeling of getting worn out or burnt out and I guess the question is, what are things, is there any intel about what they look for to know if they're, um, how long each of these, you know, losses of, of, of independence last? And, and at what point should they be thinking about a nursing home or, or getting, you know, 24-7 help? Right, yeah. And I would say that that, you know, the answer for that is different with every, everybody you talk to. Um, and so, you know, I usually ask people, you know, do you feel like you're coping well with your caregiving responsibilities? And everybody, you know, is in a different stage in their life and has had to deal with different things along the way. And I have some caregivers who have full-time jobs and, you know, it's a lot to manage if you have a full-time job to then come home and 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 help someone who has dementia and needs more physical care, right? So I think it always depends on how much support you have, how many breaks you can get from doing those caregiving responsibilities. So obviously if you have more people to share the responsibility, it's lighter. When you're the only person who's doing the caregiving, it gets more difficult. Um, And if you have physical diseases yourself and are trying to do that caregiving, it again, it's, it's very difficult to do without any help. So I would say, you know, the less supports that you have, usually the sooner people end up, um, you know, in a long-term care facility because they burn out too quickly or they can't manage. There are definitely other factors, you know, like incontinence can be very difficult to manage, you know, if someone's wetting the bed and you have to do sheets every day, or, you know, if someone has behaviors where they're aggressive, that can be very difficult. Um, And the other thing that's a really big one is when mobility starts to be difficult, you know, when people are falling on the ground or, you know, they need to be taken to the bathroom every time they go to the bathroom and helped up and helped off the toilet and the physical demands sometimes, you know, when you have 
a spouse who's smaller trying to help you with all those physical that could, those can be limiting factors mm-hmm. um so those are the big ones that i see uh in terms of when people decide to consider long-term care is um you know just when they're either physically or mentally not able to do it anymore sabina i was gonna ask you a couple more things um One, just to check in with you, because again, I'm out blabbing about how people die with certain conditions. And um, just to summarize the very terminal stage of dementia, uh, in terms of all comers in the very, very end, um, I usually tell people that um, there's a couple of defining moments. Of course, one is when someone is no longer able to swallow. Um, and they're no longer able to get anything in, that um, that is a, a, a telltale sign that the person is in the terminal stage of their illness and that feeding tubes do not add quality of life or length of life. They actually can be more risky and burdensome. And so a person will either die, um, you know, in the days or a couple of weeks following not being able to eat or drink, but that it's not starving or dehydrating to death. It's dying from dementia, Um, all the changes related with dementia. And the other way I'd say people can die is if they get some kind of infection in that very late stage, either from a urinary tract infection or pneumonia or uh, infection of a bed sore or something like that, that infection can, can take someone who's already quite frail. Um, but that that's usually how people with dementia die in the very end. And that I've seen people die very comfortably. They have a bedridden stage, just like many other illnesses. Um, in fact, it looks very much like the terminal stage of many other illnesses they become bedridden and you have to care for someone in bed and they no longer eat and drink. That's right. And they fade fade away. They sleep and sleep and sleep until they're gone. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And the, the thinking is that they're, they're not, you know, starving or feeling uncomfortable as a result, you know, sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, if they have a pneumonia, they might, you know, feel more short of breath or whatever, but they do tend to just kind of sleep and eventually fade away. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that's definitely what we see. Sabina, is there anything else you wanted to add that we didn't get to today? I think the only other thing I wanted to add was, you know, when you mentioned about caregivers and education is that um, it's we really need to advocate, you know, as, as a society for more support for our caregivers, right? And in-home support as much as possible, for sure, you know, and that um, sometimes it makes all the difference in terms of being able to keep someone in their own home environment to do that. Um, but at the same time, I also remind some of my caregivers that, you know, sometimes it is just too much and it is okay. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes that your loved one ends up being somewhere else where there's more help, you know, whether it be at a retirement home or a long-term care facility, sometimes you do just need that kind of level of care and you need to give yourself permission that that's okay because that's extra care that you can't do as one person. Mm-hmm. Um, and in doing that, sometimes you can then restore your relationship as being the relationship, whether it be, you know, mother, daughter, or, you know, spouse to each other, as opposed to being that person's caregiver only. 
because um, sometimes being their caregiver means it's harder to have that, you know, spousal relationship or that mother daughter relationship. So, you know, I think it's important to recognize both sides of the spectrum in terms of being able to, you know, have the supports at home, but also understanding that sometimes it's just not possible. And sometimes it's actually better when someone's, you know, somewhere else when they can have more supports that they, you know, some of these places can provide. Thank you so much for um, highlighting that. And you know what? If I get dementia, there's no one I'd rather care for me and my family than you, Sabina. <laughs> Honestly, you're so That's really sweet of you to say. Yeah. So, right. Sabina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website waitingroomrevolution.com to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza.